Hi, everyone. Welcome to Key Change, a COC podcast, where we explore everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 16, our final podcast of the spring. Before we get into today's topic, we really want to just stress how much fun we've had exploring opera's many facets and how glad we are to have had you, our listeners, join us along the way. We've also really loved hearing from you. Thank you for reaching out to us over email and also for the reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts, which are really great for helping people find their way to Key Change episodes. We'll be taking a break at the end of this season, but keep those comments and questions coming. Tag us anytime on social at Canadian Opera or email us at audiences at coc.ca. Now we've had a chance to speak with some of the world's greatest opera performers and creators. And a tiny teaser here, a little later on in the episode, we'll hear from renowned Canadian-American soprano Sandra Radvanovsky. So many artists at one point or another have either worked, performed, or spent time in one of Toronto's premier performance venues, which also just happens to be the home of the Canadian Opera Company, the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts. We started our podcast talking about the Opera House, and now we find ourselves ending this season by coming full circle and returning to the place we began, a very special space we can't wait to physically return to. Indeed. Now, this fall marks the 15th anniversary of the opening of the Four Seasons Centre in 2006. The building was Canada's first purpose-built opera house, meaning a venue specifically engineered to enhance the acoustics of opera singers and an orchestra. You may recall we spoke with acoustician Bob Essert back in the fall for episode two. And today we'll begin by learning more about the extraordinary crafting of the opera house, which was designed by the award-winning Toronto-based firm, Diamond Schmidt Architects, led by Jack Diamond and Donald Schmidt. We were thrilled to arrange some one-on-one time with Jack himself to be able to look back on a spectacular architectural achievement and significant cultural contribution. So let's hear from Jack. Hi, Jack. Thanks for joining us today. When people think of an opera house, they're usually envisioning heavy, decadent design, the kind of aesthetic that may have been popular over 200 years ago. But the Four Seasons Center is really quite sleek and minimalist. What was your design inspiration? Well, the first thing to say is that architecture is an inevitable expression of its community and its culture. Um, as much as you try to avoid it, that, that in itself is an expression sometimes of uh, the culture. The traditional opera house was in a culture in which there was a really high uh, hierarchy in the social structure. And so uh, all of uh, Hoi Polloi came through the main doors and Riz went through the side door to back up on a miserable little staircase. <laughs> so the first thing to say about the shift is that everyone comes into the main entrance at the same place. And the public areas are shared by everyone. There's a social integration in the design as a start. I remember going to the Opera House in Paris, and there's a tiny little space at the top for the upper balcony, miserable one. 
The same is true in the traditional ones in St. Petersburg. So uh, the, the, the principal point here is that everyone comes in the front door together. Everyone shares in the public spaces and there's no inhibition. Um, Canada, in my view, is among the best of the Western democracies. And part of that are the facilities and the arts facilities that they have. And we were really deficient in terms of the opera house of opera and ballet house. So uh, the the drive to well, by Richard Bradshaw, which was he called it the Thirty Year War. Uh, it was important for us to have a contemporary one. It's an expression of our time. Its transparency is there. It's available to everybody, and everybody comes into the same space and mixes in the same lobby. Considering the diversity of buildings that surround the Four Seasons Centre, I'm thinking about neoclassical Osgoode Hall, the Beaux-Arts style of the Canada Life Building, and the modernist Toronto City Hall. How did you conceive of the Four Seasons Centre fitting into that local landscape? Well, first of all, the heterogeneity of uh, downtown Toronto means that you can damn well do anything. And people, and sadly, people do. What it does, in, this, in, in another sense, absolutely honor the urban design. The building goes up to the sidelines and fills the block. There's no setback to destroy the continuity of the streetscape. And that's critical in terms of urbanity. Well, the second thing I would say is that it's unusual in that it pays attention to the Canadian climate. What we've done essentially is to capture the sidewalk. But the public areas are really almost, if you see the transparency uh, and you see the, the public access to that, it means that we have enclosed the sidewalk. We made it into a public space. So there's both streetscape continuity as well as a condition in which there's an acknowledgement that we have snow and cold in winter. I'm curious about the use of glass, where you were talking about transparency and accessibility and inclusion. And downtown Toronto, in that area, they're really the only buildings that have so much glass are condos, which aren't transparent and inclusive. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that design choice and the human, the human side of it. Well, when you're in a condo and you've got lights and you've got a building facing you, you draw the curtains. Uh, in terms of the, the Toronto at night, well, first of all, glass is not, glass buildings are not transparent in the daytime because the level of intensity is greater outside than inside. And since the level of light intensity on the inside is greater than outside, then you have real transparency. And of course, most of the opera performances are at after, after dusk. And so the lighting of those uh, public areas create enormous transparency. And what's important in it, implicit in your, in your, your question, is that in fact, what it does is remove the inhibitions that people might have about opera. We see people dressed in jeans going to the opera. Mm. If they're having fun, it looks like a party because there's a bar there and people are circulating. So that transparency creates accessibility, not just physically, but mentally. That is in part why the Opera House has been as uh, successful as it has. 
I know for the first few years, and I hope that that's continuing, that the average age year over year was dropping. Hmm. And that the one of the things that we did to create that familiarity and accessibility were the lunchtime concerts. Uh, I think there are about 90 of them or something a year. Mm-hmm. Line up in winter when it's freezing outside to get in for the free lunchtime concert. And it's held in the aerial amphitheater, which is very visible from the outside. And I remember sitting in the at a concert there with the uh, people who were visiting us from the Marinsky Theater in uh, St. Petersburg. They were marveling at the fact that you could look out and see the city and contemplate it while listening to the music. I thought that was a wonderful comment. So there's both transparency in and transparency out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that leads me to the next and I think the most important point. There's a question that the building pays attention to the rising interest and excitement of a performance. First, you're in this completely transparent room. You look out into the city. You can go to the bar. Uh, You can circulate among friends. But in contrast, the auditorium is absolutely not transparent. And there is a narrow opening into it. So the sequence of the rising excitement that you would normally have at a cocktail party with the same mix of people in the bar and so forth, here there's the anticipation. And the anticipation is that through very narrow doorways, everybody goes into a completely enclosed environment and the, and the, uh, and, and uh, what is suspended is the, is the rest of the world. And you focus on the drama. It is a very wonderful transition from city to city room and from city room to auditorium. And that sequence itself is a way of enhancing the experience. Jack, I love that thinking about the drama or the dramatic arc of the experience as someone enters into the building and how how that's a storytelling or there's a narrative that's being built there, an experience that's being built there. I've never thought of it in that way. That's really, really fascinating. Well, also, I think once they get inside, they see what I think is crucial in the basic Italian opera shape as opposed to the Germanic. It's the horseshoe. They can see, the the audience see themselves. Mm. The fact that it's enclosed is one thing about focusing on on the drama or the dance. But the fact is that there's also a sense of participation in a group that you're enjoying together, that there's a commonality that you seldom find outside. And I think that that sense of giving cohesion to the emotion and to the view is also part of the Italian uh, uh, horseshoe shape. They're not alone. The Italians are very good at that. What do you hope the legacy of the building will be? I've given a lot of thought to this question. Um, first of all, the background to it, in my view, is that Canada is among the best Western democracies, but it didn't have an opera house, and the arts contribute enormously to the quality of life. It, to me, of course, all the other things are there, now that we need to have decent wealth distribution, which we sort of do, but it's not going in the right direction. Uh, 
We need good education systems, which we do have. We have universal health care, but it's the arts that make a significant contribution to the quality of life. And of course, the facilities for that are important. At the sort of, not the opening, but the opening test concert, Richard Bradshaw walked out with his hand over his the side of his head, using tears. And the first violinist said to me, I never knew my instrument could sound that way. Oh. I don't think I've ever had better compliment. Both on the emotional side and on the musical side. So I think that uh, having designed a building which now has universal, and oh yes, uh, the, the, unfortunately, the, the current artistic director who's leading us, that'll make some of me, told me that he came because of the building from the Paris Opera House. So again, I mean, those are reinforcements of the fact that the house does stand well. And it's too often, I'm an immigrant to Canada, so I'm not modest as most of Canadians are. Uh, the, fact <laughs> is, <laughs> the fact of the matter is I'm delighted that we, the Opera House, are up there and uh, don't have to apologize for it. So um, it's an important point in attracting, uh, obviously, world across performers in both opera and ballet. But it has another effect. I wanted to encourage the uh, composers, Canadian composers and uh, ballet choreographers, that the house should begin to provide Canadian-based artistic achievement through the house as a, as a place for its exhibition but more likely to gain uh, stage time in Canada at a Canadian house. So I think that hopefully the legacy is not merely physical, as important as that is, but that in fact, in terms of the encouragement of Canadian, uh, as I said, uh, composers and choreographers, will develop a Canadian ballet and opera house reputation Thank you, Jack. That's beautiful. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it, but what an additional gift you've given to Canada in, in inspiring those creators. The Opera House has been open for 10 years before the pandemic. I have never been to a performance, and I have season tickets to every year, when someone hasn't come up to me, whom I don't know, and said, thank you for this. I can imagine. Yeah, and how many how many times how many performances do you think you've you've witnessed there, Jack? Well, how many? Uh, usually, there are about six. Uh, so sixty. Wow! Thank you, Jack. Yeah, it's been illuminating and um, a great honor to have this time to chat with you today. So thank you for making the time, and we know our listeners are just going to really appreciate getting this extra insight into that building that they love so much. Thank you. I have to say thank you for asking. I'm really grateful that we actually got to meet Jack and have that conversation with him. He's someone whose name I've heard very often around the company, and it was great to actually hear from the man himself, particularly around all the intentionality and all the thought that went into the experience that people would have occupying this physical space. Yeah, like from the, the transparent windows where you can watch people from the outside mm -hmm. and then going into that space 
And when I go to the opera, I'm always really excited because I'm going to the opera. And that's a thrilling event for me. But that he so intentionally crafted that space to continue that momentum and to make audience members excited. Mm -hmm. And the rising action of that experience. First they're outside, they're in the city, but outside, and then they go into that first area. And then those narrow passageways Mm -hmm. that take them into the, the nest of the auditorium where the magic happens. Right. And that they're there functionally for acoustics, but also to create a sense of drama. Like I love that dual purpose of them. Speaking with Jack really made me think about what a feat it was building a venue designed entirely around sound in the middle of downtown Toronto. For those of you who might not have visited the building before, the Opera House is located just a block south of hospitals. It's across from City Hall. There's streetcars and traffic and the subway underneath. And there's even the occasional championship parade that goes by. Yeah, definitely. So plans for the building of the Opera House were first announced in 2002. And there were almost four years between that announcement and the inaugural opening in 2006. So we're guessing that timeline was absolutely necessary for the extensive planning and logistics involved in executing a project like this. Oh, I'm sure. Which is why I'm really glad we got the chance to connect with Janice Oliver as our next guest. As executive director of the Canadian Opera House Corporation, she was directly involved in the construction of the Four Seasons Centre. Yeah, among her many duties, she helped to ensure the project was completed on budget and on time, and she managed the very many, many people who had a hand in the project, from the architects and builders to COC staff and donors. She was also there for the first commissioning or testing concerts held at the FSC in April 2006. These concerts were meant to test the acoustics of the space, and local school children were actually the very first audiences for these performances. We started by asking Janice, how did she first become involved in such an ambitious undertaking? In the uh, summer of uh, 2002, I had left my position at the University of Toronto. And part of my responsibilities had been the hiring of architects and oversight of the design and construction of all the renovations and construction of new buildings. So I had met uh, Jack Diamond and Don Schmidt many times over the years I worked there. And uh, when Kevin Garland left to go to the National Ballet, they recommended to Richard that uh, he approach and interview me for the position. And I had become very interested in opera in the, in the prior couple of years. And so it was of interest. So I went to the interview committee. And I think Richard was most impressed that in the summer before 2001, I'd gone to Seattle for the ring cycle. So anyway, I got the job, and I think it was just wonderful. It turned out to be the best job I ever had. And when you think now of your involvement with this project and and working that best job you ever had, what springs to mind about that time? Well, it was such a team effort. It was really, really wonderful. Everybody knew we were building a very special building. It was going to last 100 years. And... It was, it was a project of continuous creativity, I guess I would say. Um, it started with uh, 
Diamond Schmidt, the architects, they had uh, three young associates working with Jack, um, Gary McCluskey, Michael Tracy, and uh, Michael Lilla. And they were terrific designers and um, terrific problem solvers. And they just rolled with the punches at whatever came near them. Uh, and what I loved was that um, development uh, asked uh, Diamond Schmidt to give presentations of the design to small groups of donors. Well, obviously, Jack couldn't do all of them. So the three associates had to step up to the plate. And it was wonderful seeing them grow in their presentation skills with the donors. It was really great. And then the other part was COC. I mean, the COC is not a big organization, as you know. And yet everybody pitched in and really helped with the project. Um, we started, we had the technical group under, first of all, under Bruce McMullen and then Julian Sleeth. And they worked with the architects to make sure that all the, the requirements for the technical um, the needs of the building were incorporated into the design and they educated them as to what was needed. And then from the orchestra, Ian Cowie, we had a mock-up of the orchestra pit and he came in and it was quite an interesting dialogue between the acquisition, Jack and, you know, Ian as to what were the needs of the orchestra pit. And then um, finance, Lindy Cowan, they filled out all the forms for the government for the grants and then negotiated. We needed a construction loan to bridge the amount of money needed between when we got the donor money and when we had to pay the bills. So Lindy negotiated that loan. And then the development team under Wendy McDowell was unbelievably creative. I mean, for the groundbreaking ceremony, we were out there on the parking lot that was the site of the building, and they had had it all marked out, the whole design of the building, so people could understand they were in the orchestra pit or they were in the orchestra, and it was wonderful. But their greatest coup was getting PCL to allow the donors to go through the building. I mean, this is a total no-no on construction sites. You do not let anybody other than trades on construction sites. But they persuaded PCL, and so soon there, there was a room just full of construction boots and hard hats. And PCL said, okay, um, the development team had to take the PCL safety course, and one of them had to take the St. John's Ambulance. And it worked out really well, and it was really exciting going with some of the donors up the scaffolding to the ceiling. If you think now, going up to that ceiling, it's incredible. And seeing the acoustic plastering that was going on up there, and in fact, PCL, the contractor under PCL, had to get two guys out of retirement because it was such um, fine work that they had to do up there that they really needed the, the craftsmanship of these retired guys. And then we had um, the uh, facilities group, Alexandra Gajek, um, had to give help on getting all the furniture, and recycling bins, all the stuff needed to run a building. And then we had the education build, uh, group under Carolyn Holloway, and they were wonderful because they set up uh, the commissioning concert with all the school groups. And then, of course, Richard and Rob Lamb and Claudine were there always for advice and counsel. So it was really, really wonderful. And then the donors, we had a, a building advisory committee, and Jack and I had to go and make presentations to them and discuss issues and concerns. And 
And one of them, Jack, was talking about the fact that we really, he would really love to have the, the premium glass for the facade on University Avenue. And what that means is glass, which I didn't know, has a greenish tint. And the premium glass pretty much eliminated this greenish tint. So it was going to be a 500000 and obviously that was not in our budget. But one of the gentlemen on the building committee, a donor who had already very generously given, stepped up and gave the extra $500,000 so that we could have the magnificent facade that we, we now do. So it was just such a special team effort of everybody, you know, like piece, the, the architects, PCL, the acquisition, the COC. It just, it just was wonderful. Everybody was there trying to problem solve and, and get the best building they possibly could. We, um, we talk a lot about the opera production. You know, the act of bringing a production to the stage is such a huge collaboration. But you've really illuminated for us, Janice, the fact that the building, the building of the building involved the same level of uh, integration and collaboration between Absolutely. departments. So I understand that some very lucky school children were among the first to get a sneak peek at the venue. What were their reactions like? They were great because, uh, first of all, uh, just even going into the facility, I was up in the fifth ring and there was this little boy and he just stopped. He said, oh, I've never been in such a beautiful house in my life. You know, it just, (laughs) and, uh, they were wonderful because as part of the commissioning, uh, the acquisition did a number of exercises and you had to be totally, totally quiet. And all these kids were dead quiet. And we did the same concert for adults, so they were not <laughs> as quiet. <laughs> but the, uh, the best story was uh, Richard uh, told the story of the, there was a little boy behind him. And uh, he turned, when Richard turned to the podium to begin the concert, the little boy said, Go, dude, go, dude, <laughs> you know, which was really sweet. Um, we also had a commissioning concert for uh, the tradespeople who were involved in, in it and asked them to come and participate as part of it. So there was a, a really big uptake on that that they got to see and got to show off because they could bring a guest to their mm-hmm. family uh, what they had been part of and created. So it was a couple of special concerts there in the commission. Then we'd love to time travel with you a little bit, Janice, and thinking back to when the Opera House then opened for an opera production for the very first time, what are your recollections of that day, of that moment? Excitement, relief, (laughs) (laughs) that we had actually done it on time and on budget. We had a beautiful building. Um, The hall had great acoustics. and great sight lines, and everyone was full of praise. I think, um, I hope that uh, Richard and and uh, the rest of the artists took great pride in the fact that uh, the ring cycle was listed by the New York Times as one of the uh, top productions of the year. So that was a great, great uh, accolade for it. Well, I'd like to say kudos to Alfred Caron and his crew because, you know, the building today, 15 years later, it's just it's still outstanding. You know, he's just kept it to such a high standard. So it's wonderful walking into it. It's almost like walking in your very first time again. What are you most looking forward to in terms of being able to return to that building on the other side of this strange era that we're living through? 
I just, I really, you know, I try to watch opera and that on the, the screen, but it's just not the same. It is absolutely not the same. So I'm just so wanting to be into an environment with an audience and a, and a live production and that whole experience. It just can't be there. Oh my goodness, the story about the boy in the first row, so cute. So wonderful. It's like the stuff of COC legend. Um, our producer, Jonna, actually found a clip of Richard recounting that same memory of that moment just before he conducted the overture from the Magic Flute. And it's so charming, we just had to share it. I was glad that, we'd, that the first audience in the house was children. They were a marvelous audience. And so it was a very exciting thing to come out and realize that this was the, the audience of the future. And I came out and I, the children were very nice and they clapped and so on. And then I turned around to start and a young gentleman in the front row, aged approximately seven, said, go dude, go dude. And that was pretty nice. I felt about 40 years younger. Well, our final guest for today's episode is someone who has personally experienced a very special view of the Four Seasons Center, famed soprano, Sandra Radvanovsky. Yeah, Sandra has gazed out at a full house of audience members as seen from center stage. And as one of the COC's most celebrated stars, she sung the title roles in the company's previous productions of Ruselka, Anna Bolena, and Aida. And since the start of the pandemic, Sandra launched and now co-hosts Screaming Divas on YouTube with fellow soprano and her good friend, Carrie Alkema. Sandra has appeared on stage at some of the world's most prestigious opera houses. But as someone who's spent considerable time on the COC stage, we wanted to get her take on what infuses that space with that intangible magic. Yeah, we touched on this in our very first episode of the podcast in our chat with soprano Angel Blue. This is how she remembers her first impressions of the space at the FSC and her first time singing on its stage. Not every opera house has that where you can actually feel like you're like you're really a part of the city, like you're this is the cultural section of the of the city. Mm -hmm. That's a really mm -hmm. cool feeling. Um, but the house itself, um, singing on, on the stage in the theater with such a great acoustic was awesome. You know, having that kind of support from the orchestra, um, having feeling like, okay, wow, I can sing piano in here. And, you know, my, my vocal coach was there with me throughout that, um, that time. And he would go and like sit up in the very top balcony and he'd come back down like, you don't have to give any more. It's, it's great. I can hear everything. Yeah, I really felt that too. Just how perfect the acoustics are while being part of the noisy city. Mm, Incredible. A very special combination. And as we mentioned, Sandra Radvanovsky is no stranger to the COC, and she has some very special and amusing memories to share with us. Thanks for joining us, Sandra. Of course. I'm excited to, to talk. Well, I say see you, but it's more like to talk to you too, so... So you must have some amazing stories from the stage. Mm. Can you share one or two of your fondest memories from performing at the Four Seasons Center? Okay, best story from <laughs> best story from the COC stage involves my my partner in crime for Screaming Divas, Carrie Alkma. 
we're doing the Anna Belena Jane Seymour duet, the real, you know, heavy duty <laughs> duet. And I'm swearing at her and telling her you're horrible and go to, go to, mm-hmm. And um, apparently, I spat on her. <laughs> and Carrie um, and I, we, we are good, best of friends. Started, Carrie started giggling uncontrollably in this extremely serious duet. And of course, I then started giggling uncontrollably. And Carrie had to get up from the floor, and I'm supposed to lift her up. And she's laughing so hard that I can't lift her up off the floor. So she starts crawling away from me and and tries to, to get her act together. And she goes and leans on the wall. And then the whole wall started shaking because she was laughing so hard. <laughs> I mean, the things that audience members don't know and don't see, because that night everybody said, wow, that duet was so dramatic and so exciting. I was like, yeah, it was, because Sandra spit on Carrie. <laughs> Didn't know I was a spitter, but um, I guess that night I was really into the, the character of Anne Boleyn. So, yeah. Do you have a favorite COC production that's that you've sang in at the Four Seasons? Ooh, yes. By, by far, the Rusalka. that David McVicker production, once again, involving Carrie Alkma, David McVicker's production of Rusalka is breathtaking. It was the physically most demanding production I have ever done in my life. Crawling on the floor, cleaning up the floor with my dress, this huge train that I always had to be conscious of where it was, and and a, a stage that was like rocky, mm-hmm. you know, not an even floor at all, barefoot. And I was, you know, 50, 50 years old at that time. And a 50 year old shouldn't have to do some of those movements that I had to do. <laughs> but in act two, when Rusalka is human and um, I'm mute because part of her becoming human was that, yes, you can become human, but you'll never be able to say a word. And Carrie comes up to me in a moment where she's supposed to just walk by me as the foreign princess and say, well, look, I'm with the man that you love and not you. And she comes up to me with her hands and makes a lovely little fish face. (laughs) And I'm facing the audience. And I just was like looking at Carrie going, I'm going to kill you after this. I'm going to kill you. And she just nonchalantly just keeps walking by me and goes like a fish. I love her. I love her. You see why we're best of friends? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> a little bit of cheekiness is essential to any friendship. Absolutely. But you know what? I I, I find ways of getting back, you know? So. It's okay. Uh, well, and also for this episode, Sandra, we spoke to lead architect Jack Diamond about his intentions with the design of the space. And previously, we've spoken to Bob Essert, the acoustician behind the auditorium's incredible sound. So we're curious for you as a performer, what's that experience like singing in the Opera House in Toronto compared to, say, the relatively modern Lincoln Center in New York or the older Renaissance revival style, Wiener Staatsoper? What is that like, the experience of singing? 
I'm going to give you guys a scoop that no one knows. I think I was the very first person to sing on that stage at the Four Seasons Center. It was not completely finished yet. They had not done a complete opera. They were giving tours Mm. of the theater. And my God bless my mother-in-law. She opened up. I just wanted a tour of the theater, right? With my mother-in-law and my husband. And she says, excuse me, but my daughter-in-law is Sandra Redvanovsky. I was like, oh, people. And and she's, they all said, the, the tour guide said, well, Sandra, would you like to go stand on the stage and sing a little bit? <laughs> I was like, can I just for once just be a nobody? Yeah. So, of course, everybody in the tour group was like, oh, you're Sandra Evanoski. Oh, please go sing on the stage. So I was one of the first people to actually sing on the stage. And it was really wonderful that I got to do that because this was probably many years before my Aida there. And I got to test out the acoustics and you're right. It is amazing. It is one of, in my opinion, one of the best acoustics of an, of any opera house because it's all wood mm-hmm. and it, it, you don't have to work hard as a singer on stage. You're never competing with the orchestra because the balance of the orchestra to the singers is so wonderful. It's, I like hearing my voice come back when I'm on stage and in this theater, I always get that sense of my voice filling the theater, but not overwhelming it because they've mm-hmm. balanced the the live versus dampening levels. And truly, my two favorite theaters to sing in are the two in Toronto, the Four Seasons, and then over at the U of T, and right now the name of it, oh, come on, Kerner Hall. <laughs> yeah, Kerner Hall. The best acoustics of any theater oh. that I sing in. Yeah. Wonderful. And thank you for sharing that little, that little tidbit of when you first sang on that stage. Mm-hmm. It's a good bit of trivia. When did Sandra Radvanovsky first sing <laughs> on the stage of the Four Seasons Center? Thank you. After nearly a year and a half of theaters being shuttered across the city, the fall will be a homecoming of sorts for the COC's artists, musicians, creators, and craftspeople. Just thinking ahead to when you might return to work at the FSC, what are you most looking forward to? Seeing all of you, hmm. really. I feel like the COC is an extended family for me. And, you know, it, it doesn't feel like work when I'm there. Everybody, it's it's such a, it's just such a family feeling from, you know, top to bottom from, and Perrin Leach, we, we interviewed him on the Screaming Divas and I cannot wait to actually meet him in person. You know, yeah. it's, it's going to be, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be thrilling. And to be back on that stage, making music again with a live audience. Yay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I'm looking forward to. And not just, not just at the COC, really everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. All of us singers were, we're one big family and to not be able to see your family for a year and a half is mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. And for listeners who might not know this, you regularly perform all around the world, but home for you is actually just outside of Toronto. And what is it like having a venue and a company like the COC to be able to truly come home to? Well, you know, I'm I'm lucky. I'm lucky that A, I call Canada my home and Toronto my home. Um, And B, to have such an amazing opera house my home opera house and 
you know, it's, 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 um, it's an opera house that I can kind of grow with as my career changes and evolves. And, you know, I'm 52 now and I've been doing this for 30 years almost, you know, at some point I'm going to start to slow down um, and not seeing the leading roles as much and maybe seeing secondary roles and what better place to do that than here at the Canadian opera company and to, to make that transition into the next stage of my career and my life and to sleep in your own bed every night. It's a luxury that I've found actually in the last year and a half as well, but, and also to start teaching voice and hopefully be a part of the young artists there at the Canadian opera company and to corrupt their minds, (laughs) (laughs) you know, with all the information that I've been so lucky in my, my 30, almost 30 year career to, to have culled from all of these great singers, uh, conductors, artists that I've worked with for all these years. So it's all up in my brain. I just have to get it out and share it with everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you for sharing all that. If you imagine the Four Seasons Center, like as a person that you could have a conversation with or speak to, what would you find yourself most wanting to say to it at this time or for it to know? You know, don't be depressed. Don't be sad. We all love you. And we'll be back very soon. You know, I'm giving you a big hug, seriously. And it's what I tell all my artists. And I think of the the Four Seasons Center as an artist because it's just one element of, of a show. And without every element, we can't have a show. And right now, we're missing that key element. And they are the, the theaters, the most key element right now. And that is having a space to perform in. And so I'm coming for you. Just hold out a little longer, please. I think we're all longing to get back home, to get back to that opera house that we love so much. And uh, now we have a few moments like for you and me, Robin, to think about mm-hmm. what is the significance of that building? Yeah, it's community. Mm. Like opera comes with a lot of baggage and there's the sense or a lot of people hold the idea of it being elitist and often rightfully so, but how you can use architecture to physically start to dismantle some of these ideas and help build new and more inclusive and representative narratives mm-hmm. is just amazing to me. Yeah. So I think about like, we talk about how from the moment they enter the building, we want people to feel included in the experience, but it brought my attention to the fact that it actually starts before they even get inside the building in the sense of what are they seeing from the outside? What is that transparency? What is that image that they're seeing that might make them feel like they might have a good time and might be interested and might feel included if they were to enter? Yeah. And like, if you're walking on University Avenue or Queen Street, you might see people in fancy outfits, but you're also going to see people showing up in jeans mm-hmm. and khakis and just like coming from work. Totally. Yeah. And that variety is 
so wonderful just to see from the outside before you even get to the door. Mm -hmm. And if you're seeing like a free concert series, like midday, you might be seeing a Mm -hmm. dance troupe or you might be seeing, you know, there's such a variety of artistic expression that happens in that space and that you might witness from outside of it and want to come on in and take part. Hayden Park is one of our partners in the Opera Makers program this year. And the secondary students from Hayden Park happened to be walking by the building and they saw activity happening in the Richard Bradshaw Auditorium. And it made them think, hey, we'd like to do something with the Canadian Opera Company. That looks like fun. We'd like to take part. And then uh, a partnership grew out of that. So that makes me think that the building is accomplishing exactly what Jack set out to make it do. And that is uh, really beautiful to observe. Yeah, because that doesn't always happen. Like you have your intention and the impact. So it's so nice when they line up. Mm -hmm. I was also really um, struck by what Janice shared about all the cross-departmental collaboration that happened so that there's something about the building of the Opera House that brought out conversation and collaboration and people learning new skills and people growing through their existing skill set. And it's just really lovely to hear that that was such a part of the building of the building. (laughs) I agree that like, I remember watching the building go up, just being in awe, like, how do you make something like this happen? Mm. And so to hear how, how much sharing there was that went into the the creation of it was just, oh, beautiful. Yeah. And something that Jack said too, about him having that hope of inspiring creators, composers, and choreographers, and having this place for Canadian artists to hone their craft at home. Mm -hmm. And they can do work in a space that really reflects the level and the capacity of their talents. It's so important for us to have that here in the city, here in the country. Yeah, like we have so much talent in this country. And it's not accessible for everyone to just go to Europe and get trained. Mm -hmm. And so for us to have this space where we can really nurture our own talent Mm -hmm. and tell our our stories and develop our stories is it's a thrilling thing. And I think he I mean, I don't think I know he really successfully executed that that vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wonderful to know that there's a space that can honor the expansive vision that we know Canadian creators have and to serve as an inspiration Mm -hmm. for the next generation. Yeah. And like, within the COC, we talk about the COC family. And I love that analogy, like the building is like the cornerstone of the family. We're always trying, we're always striving to be the best that we can be. And that like, the physicality of the actual building really inspires that with the with the transparency. Mm -hmm. You're making me think that in in saying it's the cornerstone of a family, it's thinking like of the COC, the kitchen is the four season center. Like it's the kitchen party of the Mm -hmm. opera company or of the opera. And uh, in the absence of that this year, not being able to access that space and gather there together. I'm just so grateful to have had this opportunity with you and with the podcast uh, to gather and have conversations. Yeah. And like, I have so many memories of great conversations had at the Four Seasons Center and you and I having great conversations at the Four Seasons Center before and after performances Mm -hmm. and that we get to do this 
publicly and bring people in Mm -hmm. is an honor. Absolutely. Um, I I recall like going early just to be able to meet up with people and have a drink and have a chat. Yeah. Yeah. And again, in the absence of the opera house, we know it's not the same. We know it's just a small little drop in the bucket, but we've had a lot of fun and we hope you have too. Agreed. Thanks everyone for listening. And that is it for Key Change Episode 16. We want to thank all of today's guests, Jack Diamond, Janice Oliver, and Sandra Radvanovsky. We also want to thank each and every one of you for joining us along this journey. And Robin, I want to thank you for being my intrepid partner this season as we took this plunge into podcasting. I feel like we've come so far. Uh, We've certainly had tons of fun and learned a lot. It's so true. And when we came up with the idea for the podcast, we were super excited about digging into angles about opera that maybe people don't often think about. And along the way, our eyes also opened to new ways of thinking about the art form. We're so grateful to everyone who spent time with us, helping us to illuminate the past, present, and future of this art form that we all love so much. Now is probably a great time to mention that all of this year's episodes live online at coc.ca slash keychange, and so you can catch up anytime. Keychange can also be downloaded through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you get your podcasts. We'll be taking this summer to recharge, contemplate, and hopefully enjoy some beautiful sunny weather. But if, over the next few months, you catch up on an older episode and have some thoughts we want to know. Tag us anytime on social at Canadian Opera or email us at audiences at coc.ca. We're never too busy to talk opera. For now, wishing you all a safe, happy summer ahead. Bye, everyone. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly eOpera newsletter at coc.ca slash eopera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange.